I've often thought, by the way, that if there were, if if Polish and Romanian and Bulgarian and, and other migrants to this country uh, could compete for the jobs of television uh, commentators and Guardian uh, leader writers, <laughs> there would be a lot more concern about <laughs> this country than there is. But they don't. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is the show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our fantastic guest this week is a journalist, broadcaster and author, Peter Hitchens. Welcome to Trigonometry. Well, so far, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to have you, and thank you so much for coming on. We obviously know exactly who you are. That's why we've invited you on. But for anyone who, who isn't familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about how are you, where you are, what's been your journey through Okay, I'm a, I'm a social and moral conservative. I write a weekly column for the Mail on Sunday. Uh, I've worked in Fleet Street for more than 40 years, uh, first of all, as a reporter in various subjects from education, politics, industry, diplomacy, and defense. I spent... Uh, two and a bit years working as a resident correspondent in Moscow, another two years working as a resident correspondent in Washington, D.C. I have traveled on the last count to 57 countries on for work purposes, some of which no longer exist. Uh, I'm the author of, I think, seven books, but I've, not, <laughs> I've changed the titles of several of them, so I can't remember how many of them there are, <laughs> but they're all very good, whatever title they're available. <laughs> I hope that helps. Well, yeah, exactly. Of course it does. And uh, one of the things we wanted to start by talking about is you mentioned you're a social and moral conservative. And one of the things you've always been most scathing about is the transformation of the Conservative Party in this country. It's not transformation. The, the, the Conservative Party in this country was never any good. It's always been a, a, a machine for, for obtaining office for the sons of gentlemen. That's it's been its purpose. It's never been conservative. Mm. Uh, but when, for most people, I think, when they, when they hear you talking about, say, David Cameron is not a conservative or Theresa May may not be a conservative. Like, statements are the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what would a, a Peter Hitchens... A designed conservative parties. Well, I wouldn't know because my my main purpose in life for several years. I've now given up politics, but when I still tried, I made it my business to try and destroy the Conservative Party and uh, to, to ensure that it split and collapsed so that it could be fed in small pieces down the plumbing and flushed away <laughs> into the into, into the um, into the, the 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 lavatory of history. But this this project failed. Uh, people were far more interested in voting tribally than they were in voting rationally. And so the Conservative Party survived under David Cameron in 2010 when it should have been wiped from the map. And that's when I decided that really it was futile to try and get involved in politics. It would only make me unhappy. So I, I just laugh at it now. Mm. <laughs> and so, so if, if, if someone else had been successful in flushing the remains of the Conservative Party down the toilet, what are the principles that you talk, the moral and social conservatism? Well, I've never that? understood why we divide, particularly in modern Britain, why we divide politics up the way we do. It seems to me the fundamental division in modern Western politics is, is pretty much summed up in the division between, say, the Daily Mail and the Guardian, or between Polly Toynbee and me. Uh, it's, it's in the moral and social areas of sex, drugs, and rock and roll that the main contentions so nobody cares about the nationalisation of industry anymore. Uh, I'm in favour of nationalising the railways, for instance, but I'm a conservative. It's not, a, it's not an issue. The far bigger issue is, for instance, whether you have comprehensive state schools or whether you have academically selective state schools, which Polly is against, and uh, I, I'm very much in favour of, of reintroducing academic selection. Uh, the, the question of whether we continue to support 
uh, in law and custom the married family or whether we just say any old family is fine uh, is also important. And the question of whether we hold people responsible for their actions or whether the criminal justice system basically treats crime as a disease caused by poverty, abuse and all kinds of other external factors so that the crime isn't the responsibility of the criminal is another crucial area of, of, of distinction. And these are, these are where the divisions lie. But on the other hand, I've never seen why anybody couldn't be socially conservative on those issues and also in favor of a broadly social democratic approach to things like welfare. Though, of course, the, where those two meet, it means that you have, a, a, in my view, a very strong welfare state for those who need it, but one which is pretty stringent in not handing out money to people who don't need it, specifically so that it can be effective in helping those who really do need help. And that would be my ideal political party, one which was both so, social democratic and socially conservative, a bit like what the Labour Party used to be, really, until about the middle 50s. And Peter, do you think that what is happening now with the Tory party with, with when they had with the referendum and David Cameron trying to keep the party together, do you think we're going to see a new party rising out? I have no idea. I can't read politics anymore. I used to I, I used to have a pretty broad understanding of the, of, the, of the technicalities of it, of how the parties worked, how they split up and who was who. There was a time when I could give the name of every member of parliament and his or her constituency for memory, for instance. But now I've lost it all. I can't. And, and also, increasingly, I no longer care. So if you, if you want to ask me, I spent some time working in the, in, the, in, the, in the parliamentary lobby as a political reporter. And it was one of the greatest disappointments of my life. I had worked for years to get in there. I really wanted to do it. I thought it would be some kind of kingdom of the mind where intelligent people discussed the future of the country. Mm. It turned out to be a gossip factory and increasingly a gossip factory manipulated by spin doctors so that what political reporters were basically turning out was regurgitated party propaganda. There are exceptions to this, and they're, they're, they're noble and, uh, and creditable. But in general, political journalism in this country is a pretty poor thing. And I don't have much left to do with it. So you sound incredibly almost disillusioned with it. Well, I was disillusioned by that. I mean, it was amazing to me to, to, to find just how how dull and apolitical uh, the the core of, of, of political journalism was to work in what was then or what then seemed to me to be the faded magnificence of the Palace of Westminster, rubbing shoulders with cabinet ministers and all the rest of it. I had expected to be really, really thrilled and full of enjoyment when I was doing this, and it was nothing but disappointment. I said most of what was discussed was who's up and who's down, who's in and who's out. I, I now look at what happened during those years, and I realize that quite major acts of parliament passed through both houses of, of parliament at that time without me even noticing they were going on because we weren't interested in that. Mm. But we've also seen somewhat of a revolt via Brexit against the current political establishment. Do you think that signals a new dawn? It's, well, it, 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 yeah, but new dawns often bring horrible days, don't they? I don't. <laughs> I, don't uh, it, it, I, I think. It, I think that it did it encapsulate some of the things that I had for many years been saying that the the real discontents of the people were not being reflected by the political parties, and the referendum released people from party allegiance. So an awful lot of Labour voters who are socially conservative who don't like the effects, for instance, of mass immigration, who don't like the the way in which their areas have been pretty much allowed to become uh, the, the victim areas where crime and disorder flourish un, 
unchecked by the police or the courts. Uh, there was an enormous, great revulsion. There were also people, a huge number of people, got really, really sick of being told that George Osborne had cured the economy mm. when he so plainly hadn't. And anybody who, who didn't actually live in London knew that. But almost nobody who writes or talks about politics uh, lives outside London. So they had no idea of just how sick people were of being told that the recession was over and that everything was all right and, that, and, 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 and wonderful. When the jobs that people could get were miserably paid, uh, when the cost of housing was appalling and where almost everybody was forced to get into debt simply to live the kind of lives which they had thought were, were normal. And that also caused it. The, the referendum result was it was a portmanteau of discontents all expressed in one thing. And of course, I, I took no part in the referendum. I didn't vote in it because I don't like referenda. I think they're, they're nasty, dangerous things. And there was, I, I predicted if you look for the words constitutional crisis in connection with this, you'll probably find them expressed earliest by me in any index because I thought there would be a contest between the democratic mandate of parliament and the democratic mandate of the referendum. And how on earth do you sort out which is supreme? But Both of them have a similar mandate. Well, let me challenge so how, you, how do you How do you decide which, if, if they come into conflict, how do you decide who wins? We have no mechanism in our constitution for deciding this at all. This is very true. But on the other hand, if you talk about the fact that many people felt that they had no way of communicating and having their concerns validated. Yes, but if the way the that they were given was a bad way. Mm. Uh, is that not better the, the, than nowhere at all? No, it isn't. Because it, 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 the, one of the worst things about politics uh, particularly cynical populist politics designed by public relations men, is that it raises hopes it can't fulfill. Mm. You can do that only so many times before you begin to create really serious discontents. And the election of Donald Trump and the referendum in this country are both warnings to anybody who cares to listen that the age of universal suffrage democracy is coming to a very dangerous point where people are ceasing to vote on the basis of if I vote for this party, it'll improve my life, to if I vote for this party or vote this way, it will punish people I dislike. And when you move into an area when, when, when democracy is being used by people to punish those they dislike and hate, then you move into an area of grave danger. And how have we come to this point, Peter? Well, because of the, the ceaseless making of promises we couldn't keep, because of the delusional attitudes fostered by both politicians and much of the media about how important, in the case of this country, about how important and rich uh, we are, which we're not, uh, and an inability to confront the real problems of this country and to do anything about them, and always, always to change the subject when they come up. So you've said the real problems of this country, Peter. What do you think are the real problems of this country? Well, the fundamental problem has been, I, I, I don't know whether this could have been avoided. I suspect it largely could have been. The deindustrialization which took place largely under Margaret Thatcher, unintentionally, she never intended to do it as far as I know, but also I think probably impelled by, the, by membership of the European Union in the uh, 70s and 80s, has left huge numbers of people without adequate employment, with, uh, unable to do things that, they're, that, that, that will actually reward them properly, let alone enable them to, to, to raise a family in stable circumstances. Uh, the education system was sabotaged uh, by egalitarian dogma in the 1960s, the destruction of academic selection in the state system, which lowered the standards of education for the whole of the country. It's terribly visible now. The number of people, even who, who've gone through expensive private educations and have degrees in PPE from Oxford, the number of people who know, in effect, almost nothing at all in, in decision-making positions is horrifying. 
I mean, members of parliament can stand up and say, for instance, that Britain didn't get any martial aid, uh, as, as, as a couple have done recently, one at the weekend. And how can anybody become a member of parliament not knowing that, in fact, Britain was the principal recipient of martial aid? to say that we didn't get it. How can such ignorance possibly not result in, in, uh, in, at the very least, incompetence and quite possibly in disaster in the way the country and its enterprises and its institutions are run? And there's there, there lots of other things I could... Yeah. I mean, I've I, this is what I write books about because I think uh, this is odd. I don't understand why this is so. And so I go off and I do the research and I've written, I've written a book about the, the, the cultural revolution which swept through the country in the 50s and 60s, uh, which, for which I was rewarded by being told that I, I yearned for a return to the 1950s, which as anybody who lived through the 1950s can tell you, I certainly do not do. It's an era of gristle, chillblains, cigarette smoke, and uh, a, 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 almost extraordinary grimness. I wouldn't want to return to it for a moment, but nobody listens to what you say. I wrote a book on what happened about to, to crime and the police. Mm. Again, it's full of research facts, which would be immensely useful to any minister trying to do something about the crime problem. I pressed it into the hands of home secretaries and chief constables. They never read it. I, 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 I've written a lot about the, the catastrophe which happened to the education system. Nobody pays any attention at all. Uh, and it, it is extraordinary how there is no interest in looking at these things. And why do you think that is? Because of the, the national illusion. And that's the reason for my latest book, which has, has not been reviewed by any major publication, uh, The Phony Victory. The, the national religion is of the finest hour in Winston Churchill, of Britain's great role in saving the world. And there's some truth in this. But the trouble is there's an awful lot of flannel in it as well. And we, we comfort ourselves. Uh, for an episode in which we actually became much poorer and much less powerful, we comforted ourselves by telling ourselves stories about how important we were uh, when actually we weren't. And we certainly aren't now. And I think this, it's this stripping away of illusions. Now, this is not in the way of business. I'm a conservative Christian patriot. For me to attack a sacred figure such as Winston Churchill seems to me to be a significant act and, and, and to, to be educational. For the left to attack it, well, that's nothing. They've been doing it for years. <laughs> but if somebody, if somebody like me does it, then it would seem to me to be interesting. But I can't get anybody to pay any attention. But I don't see the connection between the, the phony victory, as you call it, and chief constables not wanting to read about crime statistics. Well, the, 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 the connection is that in both cases, I've said something important that nobody wants to know. Uh, but in the, I, I'm, not, I'm not offering you a sort of single cause for everything. Mm. Uh, I'm just pointing out that I repeatedly try and, and, and look at things as they've actually happened to go into the archives and research what, what took place mm. to see if what we're being told is true. And again and again, I find what we're told is not true. But the fundamental illusion in this country is, is an illusion that we are far more important and far richer than we are. In fact, we're terribly in debt, both as a country mm. and as a people. And our military, diplomatic, and political power is pitiful compared with what it used to be. And it's, you're never going to solve the problems of a country or a family or an individual unless that country or that family or that individual or that institution confronts honestly the difficulties with the country. And this is a thing which was very much the case with the Soviet Union. And it was partly living in the Soviet Union in its final convulsive months that made me look more critically at my own country. Here was a, 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 an enormous empire completely deluding itself mm. about how rich and strong and important it was. And when it fell, the fall was terrible. 
And you must, because you were in Moscow, I think, as a child when I was mm. living there, you must remember, I remember, people losing all their savings mm. overnight. Overnight. Yeah. Standing in the street, selling their possessions from little, uh, f from little fake veneer tables uh, near the markets so they could afford to eat. And these were middle-class professional people who, a couple of years before, had thought their future was endless and uninterrupted, selling their possessions to live. Mm. It made a very strong impression on me. It always reminded me of the opening scenes of that great film, The Third Man, if you've seen it, where it's, which is set in post-war Vienna, and the same thing is happening. The middle classes of, of, of post-war Vienna are reduced to selling their possessions on the streets to live, mm. a thing I thought I'd never see anywhere, and I saw it in Moscow. And you, you were talking about crime. Do you think that Britain's become a more dangerous and lawless place? I think very much so. For a lot of people, the poorer you are, the more dangerous mm. it is. Uh, people live in places where they know perfectly well that there will be no, if their houses are robbed, uh, no help will come. The best thing to do is to shut up. You don't want to be known as a grass in these places because a terrible troll will come to you. So you don't report the crime, which is why crime statistics bear so little relation to crime as a fact. For a lot of people, there is a great deal of misery. Uh, they have predatory neighbors, and they have to knuckle under to them. And there is also a great deal more violence than there used to be. And people resort to violence much more readily than they used to. There's more danger of it. I, I am old enough to remember the 50s, and while they had many disadvantages, they were extraordinarily peaceful. Again, it was while I was in Moscow that I was alerted to this, because I used to live in a rather nice suburb of Portsmouth called Aldersdow, mainly favored by retired admirals. <laughs> in the uh, a place of extraordinary <laughs> peace and safety, where my brother and I used to roam the streets as children, with, with in, in the way that children used to do, uh, on the on the sunny summer days, and I I read in a in a British newspaper which was delivered to me in Moscow an account of how somebody had been I think kicked to death uh, in some stupid meaningless row in in Alverstoke. I thought, well, if it's happened there, then we have problems. And it, it, I, I knew already it happened elsewhere, but for it to be happening in a place like that, I thought we are in difficulty. I've done a lot of work on the on, on the fiddling of crime statistics by the police, which was derided when I did it, but was later vindicated by by a House of Commons committee. Uh, the the ridiculous claims that people make that violence is falling are simply not true. Uh, what's happened is that recorded violence may be falling, but the, the thing itself is there. And the menace of violence, which, which keeps people away from places which they would once have felt safe in, is also very important. And I think the lack of reassurance as well is a big issue. For example, I had my car broken into in London uh, a few months ago, uh, and I, had to, I couldn't get through to the police on the phone. I eventually had to report it online, and I got an email back the next day telling me that the crime couldn't be investigated because there was no evidence, even though there was CCTV cameras oh, everywhere. Oh, that's, that, 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 is, that is standard. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people will have had similar experiences. Mm. The police, having become a reactive force which waits for crime to happen and then tries to respond to it, are overwhelmed. It is a fundamentally mad way of trying to deal with crime, uh, but they are absolutely set on doing it. And it cannot possibly work. It simply creates more and more demand for, for services which are not working. And that's why they want to hear from you online. That's why they close all the police stations. They don't want any contact with the public. It's only bring them trouble. <laughs> and, and so there you are. Presumably you've got a crime number for your insurance. Uh, yeah, I've got a crime that's number. That's all yeah. they care about. But ironically, a few, a few weeks later, there was this story that was in the news recently of Humberside police who called up a man because he, he retweeted some offensive tweet. And, and they told him that they needed to check that he was thinking correctly. 
Yes, but Twitter is very is very tightly patrolled. Uh, possibly because it doesn't involve going out in the rain. I don't know. But, <laughs> but it, I, I, it, for saying these things, I mean, you are attacking the police. I, the, I love the police when they are police. Mm. I think it's the most fantastic idea to have big guys in, in or uh, let's not be sexist, <laughs> uh, big people in uniform walking along, or even medium-sized people in uniform, walking along the street visibly providing a focus of law and reassurance to everybody else who who is law-abiding, the effect of, of, of regular preventive foot patrolling is immense. But they won't do it. Mm. They absolutely won't do it. They go on about numbers. It's nothing to do with numbers. And this is one of the things that I discovered. In the days when they used to do regular preventive foot patrolling, there were a lot fewer of them than there are now. So it's not it's it, this this excuse of numbers which they always bring out is absolutely false. It's not because they they don't have the numbers. It's because they don't have the will. And so, as is so often the case. <laughs> and Peter, if you were going to revolutionise the police force, what would you do? What what certain measures? Sell the cars, sell the helicopters, uh, sell all that gear. Uh, make sure everybody had decent, uh, well-fitting boots to walk in and say, off you go on the street. One by one, not two by two. If you send police out two by two, they, they, they walk along chatting to each other about overtime. And you could commit a, a burglary and a mugging. <laughs> they wouldn't notice. But an individual police officer patrolling has an enormous effect. And just go back on the beat, which, is, which was abolished by Roy Jenkins in 1967, and do that. And you'd be amazed at uh, the effect that it will have. I want to change tack a little bit, if you don't mind, Francis, yeah. just to go back to an issue that you briefly mentioned, which is mass immigration. And the reason I want to bring it up is that I remember watching you on Question Time and you, you called it a catastrophe and the, the four other panelists would essentially not let you speak. So uh, this is the opposite of what we do here. So you've called it a catastrophe. Why is it a catastrophe? And you've got plenty of time to, to talk about it. Because of the scale of it. You can't, the, it immigration is, 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 is good generally, both for the people who do it and for the countries which accept it, provided that there's a chance to integrate. When I began in politics long ago, when I was a revolutionary socialist, uh, the thing that we used to talk about was uh, that we were really, really against was what we called racialism in those days, was the racial discrimination. It's, just, it's distinct in an important way from the word racism that people use now. And one of the things that we very much called for was integration. And integration is perfectly possible. If someone comes here as, uh, as an individual and, uh, and wants to bring up his children or uh, and start a family or, and go to work and all the things that people do, they come from other countries usually to improve themselves, then in time, they will learn the language, they'll learn the customs, they'll learn the law, they will become pretty much uh, British. And no one will uh, no one will get in their way in, in, in doing so. If huge numbers of people come simultaneously, then that process is impossible. What will happen is that people will gather in areas they won't integrate, they will form solitudes with their backs turned upon each other. And you will get, especially if the state, as it does now, encourages multiculturalism, you will get a society where large parts of, you take a city like Bradford, for instance, large parts of the population never meet other parts of the population except uh, maybe in the city centre crossing and in, in, in crossing the road or in shops, but not in any re realistically integratory way. So mass immigration is, is damaging because it prevents integration. It's also damaging because 
few immigrants are rich. They will tend to come and live in the poorer areas of cities. And they will therefore be experienced most of all by the poorest people who are not terribly interested in the fact that there's a funky new restaurant around the corner or that you can hire nannies cheaply. <laughs> what they see is they see in some cases competition uh, for their jobs. And I've often thought, by the way, that if there were, if, if Polish and Romanian and Bulgarian and, and other migrants to this country uh, could compete for the jobs of television uh, commentators and Guardian uh, leader writers, <laughs> there would be a lot more concern about <laughs> in this country than there is. But they don't. It's not that. It's it's, it's in other areas of society mm. where where it happens, and of course also they put pressure on the housing and on the on the schools and on the medical services, which means and the transport, which means that, that everybody is slightly worse off, in a way which they resent. And the other thing is, of course, that people don't feel at home in their own areas. And it's all very well to laugh and mock at that, but I really don't see how you can't view it as quite a big problem, especially if you're an old person living alone or where you, your children have gone in a small house in a poor area of town, to find bit by bit that the area in which you grew up is no longer recognizable to you. I, I think that's a serious problem. It hurts people. And it's, it's not fascist uh, to be sympathetic towards it or to think that it would probably be wise to avoid it. And would you blame globalization for this, or is it? Do you think is there a particular politician? I think there is a. I think there, there, there are traces of a policy uh, in the famous uh, memorandum uh, that Andrew Neither is associated mm. with, uh, which I haven't to hand, so I can't quote from it. But there seemed to be a suggestion in what had come out of New Labour at that period, the sort of height of Blairism, uh, that they actually saw large-scale immigration as a way of... Uh, to rub the rights nose in diversity. Rubbing the rights nose in diversity. Mm. But I think even more than that, I think they didn't... The, the new Labour people, as far, I regard them as Euro-communists, uh, revolutionaries, they didn't like Britain as it was mm. uh, in the 1980s or before then. And they wanted to change it irreversibly. And I think they may well have seen large-scale immigration as a way of doing that. And uh, that's, that is, after all, what happened? There's also another thing. Governments of both major parties, I think, have decided that they want to turn this into a low-wage economy. say so high levels of employment, but low levels of wages, as opposed to what it was before, an economy where, the, where the, there was high, high productivity, comparatively high productivity, and comparatively high wages. That's an economic decision. That requires, if it's to work, a, a, a large amount of, of, of extra labor coming into the country, and that means immigration. I think they've actually been, uh, although they make speeches saying we're going to get it under control one day and bring it down to whatever level it is per year, I think actually what they've had in mind and what their economic, economic advisors have told them is that they should, uh, they should, if not actually actively encouraged, certainly be perfectly happy to accept a fairly constantly high level of, uh, of migration of young men and women who will, who will fill these low-wage jobs, which they do. But there's a very easy way to shut down that debate in that if somebody voices your opinions and I'm here listening to it, I'm going, well, this is all perfectly reasonable, is from the other person to shout, well, you're racist, you're a xenophobe. Well, they can, and they do. Uh, but I can't, the only, the only answer I can give you to that is that you'd have to provide some sort of, uh, some sort of justification for making the claim. As I say, I used to be a revolution, revolutionary socialist. The best thing about the far left in this country always was its absolute opposition to racial bigotry. Uh, it's a 
it's a point that I've I've never diverged from. In all my changes of political position since then, I've I've never changed my view. That racial bigotry is disgusting, and I'm against it. Uh, if you don't like it, I think one of the things you might need to do is to consider whether large-scale immigration actually makes racial bigotry more or less likely. I suspect that it can make it more likely. And Peter, moving on, one thing I've always found very interesting reading your columns is your absolute opposition to the legalisation of marijuana. And because there is, at the moment, uh, there's a bit of a movement combined with, you know, the pharmaceutical companies with medicinal marijuana to legalise it. Why are you so opposed to it? Well, let's put it at its lowest level. Uh, The legalisation of a drug is irreversible. Once you legalize anything that, uh, and it becomes legal and then goes, goes into mass use, you will not be able to, to prohibit it again afterwards. I'll give you an example, the Iranian Islamic Republic's attempt to suppress alcohol. Now, the Islamic Republic is a pretty despotic state. Uh, it could throw you into prison, as uh, happened to my friend Jason Rezaian, on no pretext at all, and call you what it likes, and you have no protection. Uh, it has huge resources, and no doubt plenty of people who can inform and spy. And since 1979, it's tried to ban alcohol in the Islamic Republic of Iran, and it has completely and utterly failed. I didn't do it when I was on a visit there, but uh, I believe my brother, when he was on a visit there, did. You can order uh, alcohol uh, in... Tehran, and within half an hour it will be delivered to your door. There's no difficulty. You can't, you can't once you've once you've legalised something, you can't then delegalise. So it's an irreversible step. And just at the moment, when more and more information is coming out that the use of marijuana is is correlated with, and I stress the correlation, is correlated with a quite severe mental illness. And I, I would cite particularly the Swedish Army study. And the Dunedin study, which suggests this, and also the work of Professor Sir Robin Murray. At that moment, when the information is just beginning to come out, would seem to be the worst possible moment to take an irreversible step. That's putting it at its absolute gentlest. I would say that I, that, that you you could go a lot further. Uh, there is a, a a website called Attacker Smoked Cannabis, which I would commend to anybody, which just lists the astonishing number of cases in which people have committed acts of savage violence uh, after smoking cannabis or, or people with a cannabis habit. I myself have looked into, and this is not about terrorism. Everybody says, oh, Hitchens is trying to excuse Islam. Hitchens says it's not, it, that there's no jihad. This is round objects. I mean, it's such rubbish. But people will say it. But, 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 so I have to put in that caveat. I looked into the, because, because the information was there, I looked into all, all the major terrorist incidents of, in, in Europe and all the major rampage killings in North America and indeed uh, Japan in, in recent years. And the reason I could look into them was because unlike most crime, these episodes are still thoroughly covered by the media. People actually do look into the antecedents of the, of the perpetrators in a way which in lots of cases they simply don't. And what I found was that in almost every single case, the perpetrators of these rampage killings, whether in North America or Europe or Britain, from the killers of Lee Rigby to, uh, to Jared Lochner, the man who, who, who massacred people in Arizona, uh, to the killers of two Canadian soldiers, to the Bataclan killers, uh, to the guy who was uh, who, who killed people on the beach in Tunisia at Sousse, to the man who who pulled a gun on the passengers in the Talis train, every single one of them 
uh, was a marijuana user. Uh, there are other drugs involved as well. I mean, Anders Breivik, for instance, through his own testimony, we, we know this, Anders Breivik was on steroids, as was Omar Martin, the culprit of the, uh, of the Orlando uh, nightclub killing, and indeed the culprits of the Westminster uh, knife attack and the London Bridge murder. So steroids are important as well. And so are antidepressants. But marijuana plays a very, very large role. Uh, in these things and in the backgrounds of many, many people who commit serious acts of violence, it is there. And it's not there because they were, they were necessarily stoned at the time, it's there because of its long-term effects on people. If you, look, if you look at the, uh, the behavior of, uh, of Adebolajo and Adebowale, the two ki killers of Lee Rigby uh, in court, uh, you can see that these were people who were not wholly, um, how shall I say, uh, not wholly reasonable. And Peter, would you therefore have it upgraded to a class A from a class B? I think these distinctions are more or less meaningless. The distinction, the A, B and C distinctions were invented for the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act. And I've written about this in detail in, in my book, uh, The War We Never Fought. The two things the, the marijuana legalization campaigners wanted. One was to separate marijuana from the other bogeyman drugs of the time. And at the time they were LSD and heroin. And so the classification of A and B separated that. The other thing they wanted to do was to separate the crime of possession from the crime of, of, of sale and trafficking, to make possession a minor crime and trafficking a major crime. There's no logic in this if you think about it. And they achieved both of those things. I, it's nothing to do with class A or class B. You can classify it as class XXZH, <laughs> what I care. If you don't <clears throat> actually prosecute, which is what we don't do, then you will have no effect. And what happens at the moment is we have a law because we're obliged by international treaty to have that law, but we don't operate it. So the actual the act, the very serious crime, which attracts a, a prison sentence of five years and an unlimited fine of possession of cannabis, is pretty much unprosecuted. The police will, as far as they possibly can, avoid arresting anybody for it. If they do arrest them for it, they'll probably give them something called the cannabis warning, which is meaningless. If they ever are prosecuted, the, the courts will, will hand down the tiniest conceivable sentence. It's a law we don't enforce. What about tra changing from A to B is, is, is a meaningless gesture policy. What about the kind of Portuguese model where you decriminalize and treat it as a health issue rather than as, as a crime issue? Well, again, I have to direct you because we could spend hours on this to a long blog posting which I wrote on the Portuguese drug paradise. Portugal had a very serious drug problem uh, before these, uh, these changes were made. Uh, it's, it didn't actually, uh, they, uh, they, the enforcement of, of, of drug law in Portugal before then had been extremely weak. The changes claimed are perhaps a little exaggerated and may be wrongly attributed. Uh, the, for instance, Portugal's needle exchange program and various other things go back a long time before the depenalization. And some things have got worse, particularly lifetime use of certain drugs. And I, I would say that I would say this is a correlation and not a causation, uh, that homicide and petty crime also increased. There are many aspects to drug abuse, apart from the deaths of drug users, which we have to worry about. One of them is the mental health, particularly of users of cannabis, which is, is seldom recorded because most modern Western countries try as hard as they possibly can not to get involved in treating the mentally ill because it's so expensive, so they just shove them mm. to one side. Then you have the difficulty of crimes committed by people who have been taking drugs, which by and large police don't record or pay any attention to. 
uh, and then you have the 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 general level of other crime, which tends to follow where drugs come first. And I think a serious examination of Portugal, and I, I, I've tried to put you know, to examine both sides of the case in this long article I've written about it. A serious examination of it shows that it's by no means the paradise that's claimed, and people should look at it more carefully before before imagining that somehow or other they've solved the problem in Lisbon because they have not. And Peter, where do you stand on the issue of addiction? Do you believe that it's a mental health condition, or do you think it's an indulgence? It's a fantasy. There is no such thing. I, the word has no definable meaning. It's a shapeshifter. And this is the problem with it. People will use it in two distinct ways. They will use it as if it excuses the drug user from, from taking the drug, as if it totally overwhelms his or her will so that he has no choice but to take it. And they will use it in another way to, to suggest the opposite. It cannot be both. Either you can stop or you cannot stop. In my view, you can and many people do. And I think the treating of what is effectively a crime uh, as an illness is very dangerous. It's also rather insulting to people who are genuinely ill. Uh, no, one, no, one, no one voluntarily gets cancer. No one voluntarily gets leukemia. No one voluntarily gets tuberculosis. Uh, these are illnesses. These can be treated. People who start taking powerful psychotropic illegal drugs do it as an act of voluntary will. And also, they, they don't become habituated, which is as far as I'm prepared to go. They don't become habituated immediately. It could take quite an effort to get habituated to any drug. These people should not be treated as if they were ill. They should be treated as if they were voluntary criminals. And, and, and if we did that, I promise you, we'd have a lot fewer of them. And if you really are seriously concerned about the suffering which is caused by these drugs, both to the people who take them and to their families and to their neighbors and to their workmates and to the, and to the taxpayers who... Who, uh, who get mugged to give them their methadone. If you're seriously concerned about all these things, uh, then you should be trying to prevent people becoming habitual drug users. And I think a, a judicious application of the criminal law would be a much better way of doing that than any amount of so-called treatment. And there are people who would say uh, that the fact that we, that we decide to make marijuana illegal but alcohol legal is incredibly hypocritical when actually alcohol is incredibly dangerous. Of course it's dangerous, and, and, uh, it, but again, it, we have the problem. It is already legal and in mass use. And an attempt to ban it uh, would not work. In a free country such as this one, the, the measures that you would have to take even to try would be, would be politically impossible. Uh, that doesn't mean that alcohol shouldn't be more tightly controlled. I very much regret the repeal of the, of the very effective alcohol licensing laws which were in place in my childhood and in my teens, uh, which were abolished by, mainly by the Conservative Party in the 1980s, uh, when pubs were open only for, for limited areas, limited parts of the day, uh, and when it was, you couldn't buy alcohol in supermarkets, for instance, you only buy it in off-licenses. And in general, it was uh, much harder to get. Not impossible, but much harder. And there was, as a result, much less drinking. I would bring that back like a shot. But I can't see how the existence of one disastrous legal poison in our society and, and the existence of another disastrous legal poison in the, in, the, in the shape of cigarettes could possibly be an argument for introducing a third legal poison into our society. It doesn't seem to me that there's any logic in that that could be advanced by anybody who wasn't um, a moron. <laughs> well, on that happy note, uh, let's move on. And I, I wanted, we wanted to talk to you as uh, we were talking before we started recording about uh, me being from the Soviet Union, Francis, mother from Venezuela. Are, are you troubled as a former revolutionary socialist 
by the seeming resurgence of some of those ideas in, in our society? I'm never troubled by <coughs> ideas. I don't think people are entitled to have ideas. It's, it's right for people. I would much rather for someone to be profoundly discontented about our society than to, for him to stupefy himself with drugs. For instance, mm. uh, at least, at least, there's some thought and some energy, some revulsion against injustice. And this is an in, this is an unjust world. And anybody who doesn't notice that is is uh, incredibly unobservant and and flaccid and passive. And I know <laughs> I would I'd never object to to strongly held, genuinely held political opinions, critical of, the, of of things as they are. It would be wrong if people. If people didn't hold them, I'd also be betraying my own self if I if I said, oh, well, I was allowed to be a revolutionary when I was in my teens and 20s and you're not. So I have no objection to people holding ideas, no. Uh, but I think they should test them against practice, and I think they should also test them against history. And they might find that some of them have uh, have very dangerous consequences. My, uh, my fundamental rule about this is that the problem with utopia is that it can only ever be approached across a sea of blood, and you never get there. Mm. And that is my warning to anybody who thinks that he can create utopia. Well, I agree with you in that it's great that people are exploring ideas, but some ideas are very bad ideas. Right? They are. Lots of ideas are very, most ideas are <laughs> pretty bad. <laughs> uh, and almost all of them need to, be, need to be tempered and moderated by experience and restraint, uh, which, is, which is why sensible societies make sure that, that power is surrounded by a bodyguard of muttering pessimists saying, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> it, the, the law which parliament passes every day is the law of unintended consequences. And if I were reordering Parliament, I would set up a select committee on unintended consequences to be given the job of evaluating every major piece of legislation to look for unintended consequences, because there are so many of them, and they, they are actually often avoidable. Imagine if we had that before Brexit. <laughs> well, that, no, that wasn't, that the, that wasn't legislation. That's, here's, here's the whole point. That was direct democracy. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons. I, I, the, there is one country in continental Europe which absolutely does not hold referendum. Which is it? In Europe? Yeah. Doesn't hold referenda. Oh, that's interesting. Um, it's the Federal Republic of Germany. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say, Jeff. And that's because of hard historical experience. They, <laughs> they, they, they know how these things can be. They, they know how these things, they've seen. They're people, it's, it's a living memory of how, of how this, this, this can be misused. And they don't, they don't hold it. And I'm, I'm with them. If you, if you have a parliamentary democracy, you, you, you don't want to mix it up with direct democracy. Which, apart from anything else, removes all the mediating factors. So well, that's why I was against the referendum. That's why I didn't vote in it. And I'm increasingly regarded as a, as, as, as a sort of remain a traitor by, by, by people who, in the long, lonely years when I was a, a, a near solitary believer in secession from the European Union, were nowhere to be seen. And they now shout and, and, and scream at me as if I'm some kind of traitor because I'm not keen on what's going on now. I want to stick with the left just for a moment, though, um, because the, the reason I ask about it is it seems to me that there's a, you know, in, in your days when you were a radical revolutionary, the, the left talked about workers and the oppressors from above, right? Well, we, we, we got past that. We would have, my lot would have thought of ourselves as reasonably literate and educated. We wouldn't have talked that kind of, mm. that kind of language. Uh, we did believe that the, the main engine of revolution would come from what then still existed in this country, which is an industrial working class. Mm. And we spent an awful lot of our time uh, trying to recruit from the industrial working class and in the trade union movement. It was the, the, the prime activity uh, that we had, and some of it quite successful. But of course, that's gone now. 
Yeah. So that's my point, which is the left has now gone to this identity politics thing where it's created a whole different structure of oppressors and the oppressed. And it's actually, you talked about racial discrimination. It, it seems to be putting some of those elements almost in reverse. Where well, it gets into terrible messes, particularly over Islam, mm. uh, that the, the, the left it, it, it will sometimes identify with Islamic causes. This is a great deal of the Labour Party's problem with, with, with what is called anti-Semitism. It's more complicated than that. But the, the, there is a great deal of, uh, of shyness about uh, criticizing some of the more uh, virulent uh, attitudes of some Muslims, and particularly towards the state of Israel. And that's one of the reasons for that. And also, of course, the, 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 the almost ridiculous alliance which the Socialist Workers' Party, the successor of the organization to which I belonged, got into over, over, over Islam, Islam being fantastically morally conservative and the SWP not being, and yet they managed <laughs> to hold hands for some time. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is unprincipled stuff. But there is a, the, the turn away from trying to achieve a working class revolution, which is fundamentally a 19th century idea, came a lot earlier than, than, than the 1990s. It goes back to Antonio Gramsci in the 1920s, the first of the European communists who realized that the Soviet experiment was already a disaster that the, the, the Soviet seizure of power would never be replicated in advanced European countries where you had an educated, largely Christian working class, that a cultural revolution, that a change in hegemony was the thing that needed to be achieved, and that the, the issues that w where the battle would have to be held would, would not necessarily be economic, would be cultural and moral. Uh, the destruction, particularly of the of, of the power of the Christian Church, has been part of it, and one of the, there is a, an inevitable hostility between between revolution and, and Christianity, which shows all the time, and that's which begun by Gramsci, more or less discovered by us when we were student revolutionaries in the late sixties and early seventies, and then brought into practice by the long march to the institutions of the university generation, which then rose. The immense number of people in Blair's cabinet who had been uh, revolutionary socialists in one kind or another, including Blair himself, who recently confessed it, a, a, a fact which almost nobody knows because nobody understands its significance. But if it had, if it had come out in 1995, it would have destroyed him. Uh, but the, these people are not like me. I was a Trotskyist. I openly say I was a Trotskyist. Most people know I was a Trotskyist because I've told them. <laughs> the, the, the members of, the, of Blair's cabinet who were Trotskyists don't publicize it, don't talk about it, don't like discussing it because it's still important to them. It's still an important part of their political formation. And they are modern, intelligent revolutionaries who realize that, that seizing the post office and the barracks and the railway <laughs> station isn't the thing anymore. What you seize now is the television studio and the university and the school and the newspaper uh, and, and, and indeed the, the courts. And that's what they, they did. They, went, they came out of university at the, end of the, at the end of the 60s and they found out into all these things and they, they simply became, uh, they became the, the layer of professional people who were doing all the things, and they became immensely influential. And by 1997, they really couldn't understand why they weren't also the government, which is, which is why there's a sort of explosion of, of, righteous, of righteous joy among them when the Blair government was elected. 
finally, we're not just in power in, 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 in the universities and the courts and the, and, and the BBC, we're in power in the government. We've got Downing Street too. And it was an immense revolutionary moment, probably the most revolutionary moment since Cromwell. And people still don't get it. Mm. And with regards to Corbyn, do you think he's going to be seen as a successful Labour leader, or do you think he's going to be seen as someone who's blown a major opportunity? I don't know. It depends what happens. He's, he's, it, was, it was always said of John Major that he became everything he became by not being somebody. I, <laughs> he, became, he became Prime Minister by not being Margaret Thatcher. He stayed Prime Minister by not being Neil Kinnock. Uh, and then he lost his job by not being Tony Blair. <laughs> and but and in, in Jeremy Corbyn's case, all his all his advantages are negative. He's faced by a Conservative Party in a terrible mess with a, with a pretty disastrous leader. He might. I wouldn't rule out the possibility. Uh, certainly, of a of a of, for instance, a, a Corbynite Labour Scottish Nationalist arrangement of, of government and majority in Parliament at some time in the future, it's perfectly possible that he could become Prime Minister. And it'd be very interesting to watch and see how that works out. Uh, and who the important people are in that government. I, Corbyn probably won't be one of them. Corbyn is fundamentally like Theresa May, a local government person. That's where he comes from, from the, 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 the back stairs of, of, of town halls. Uh, he's not. <laughs> so she is, she is well. Theresa May was, spent a lot of time as a, 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 in, 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 in in local government before she rose about trace to where she is now. <laughs> and the, 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 that's, he's narrow, poorly educated, uh, not particularly articulate uh, personality, but if he reads books, for instance, I don't think that he's really capable of the of, of, of the breadth of understanding which would make him a, a particularly effective prime minister, whether you like what he did or not. But I, one maybe people like John McDonnell uh, might be rather more important in his government than he is, uh, if there is such a government. But I don't know. I can't tell. Uh, but in Political terms, Jeremy Corbyn is a museum piece. He's a he's he's a, a relic of a of a kind of left wing politics, which I remember still existing when I was in the London Labour Party's in the in the late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties, uh, but which is long ago was superseded by the the, the New Labour uh, Gramscian Cultural Revolutionaries, and they're 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 almost touchingly honest. In, they're, they're obviously. Uh, they're obviously on, on the far left, and they, they're open about it, whereas the Blairites pretended to be conservatives, and they still do. And in some ways, I would rather have my, my enemy in plain sight saying what he actually is than, as the Blairites do, pretending to be something they aren't. Well, that's the curious thing, as you talk about this being one of the greatest revolutionary moments, 1997. 1997 was a, was, a, was a huge revolution. But the Labour Party under Corbyn has gone further to the left. No, it's a different left. It's, it, it's, it, it's, he's a sort of Edwardian leftist. Mm. He still thinks in all, in, in all those, in all those car categories. It's one of the reasons why he's, uh, he's against the European Union. Because the European Union is, of course, a, um, a cultural revolutionary project. It's very secular. Uh, it's it's very opposed to national sovereignty. It's supranational. Uh, all its um, all its social attitudes are liberal and politically correct to an, to an extreme, uh, to the most extreme level. Uh, many of the big major 
social and moral changes that have been imposed on this country by law in the past 10 years actually started life as European Union directives. Uh, and it is, it's a revolutionary movement. One of the founders of, of Europeanism as we know it now is Altiero Spinelli, an, 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 another Italian communist, who I absolutely knew that, was very familiar with the work of Antonio Gramsci. Uh, so, so, so to be against the European Union is to be a very old-fashioned, almost a pre-1917 type of leftist. I say he's a museum piece, but museum pieces can be got out of museums and made to, and, and made to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're running out of time. Um, and Peter, normally we ask some, uh, our guests what's the one thing no one's talking about that we ought to be talking about. I have a sense that with you there might be a couple of things, so why don't you... Well, I, there are lots of things. I would, have, I would certainly have talked about the, the, the cannabis issue if, if we hadn't already done so, mm. but I, it isn't talked about anything like enough. And the, the correlation between cannabis use and mental health cannot be talked about enough because it's, and the, cor the correlation between cannabis use and crime cannot be talked about enough because they are major problems. I'm pursuing a petition on this matter at the, 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 at the moment to try and get the government to inquire into the link to see if it is not just a correlation but a genuine causal connection. But the other thing that, that uh, always preoccupies me and has preoccupied me since my childhood is the horrible way in which we allow the car to dominate our civilization. It's, it, 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 uh, have chosen to make it the, the dominant means of transport and will not turn away from this. So that even now, near where I live in Oxford, there's a plan for yet another motorway called the Oxford-Cambridge Expressway, which will be a, a horrible scar across the face of the country, will solve no problems, but is based upon this, this love of and obsession with the car as the, as the only uh, modern means of transport we're prepared to give serious support to. Uh, which does so much damage to health, to to the beauty of the country, to town planning, to the way in which people live, and indeed to the freedom of children to roam about the countryside. I th it's the car. It's not. It's not uh, paedophile killers. The, <laughs> I mean, they are, they exist, and when they and when they happen, they're terrible things. And I, I, I'm not laughing about that. They, 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 they do exist, but it's very rare. But the real danger, the real reason why children can't roam about as they did when I was young, is because it's, the roads are just too dangerous. And we just tolerate this and the, the large numbers of deaths and terrible injuries every year. Wholly innocent people and nobody cares. I really do wish people cared more about it. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's done a great deal of damage and we could do a lot more to restrain it than we do. And do you think that would, that would be the case? We could, we, we could do more to restrain it if the public transport system was better and more efficient? Well, in Zurich, I, Switzerland is a paradise of, of railways and public transport. Uh, you can get anywhere in Switzerland without a car. In Switzerland, they, in, in Zurich, they made the tram system so good that people gave up driving their Mercedes. I want that to happen here. I want the public transport system to be so good that people no longer want to use cars. And I, I think it would be a huge improvement in our, in our way of life if it was done. And on that note, thank you very much, Peter. If people want to find you on Twitter, uh, where can they find you? Well, I, had, it's, it, I can't explain this, but my Twitter handle is Clark Micah, uh, it's, <laughs> it, which is the name of a favorite novel backwards. Uh, <laughs> if, 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 I can't really explain why it is that, that you can't, I can't simply use my own name, but believe me, I haven't done it deliberately to confuse you. But if you search for Peter Hitchens, you'll we'll put We'll it. put it in the video. Uh, we'll put it in the video. Peter, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a, a pleasure speaking with you. And as always, follow us at TriggerPod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and uh, obviously, subscribe to the YouTube channel, as many of you already have. Click that bell button next to the subscribe button. And we will see you in a week from now. And also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it. Please tell a friend. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, we're up to 35 now, and we're slowly building, so please leave us a nice review. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much.
Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.